Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Hey, welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio, broadcasting live on Revolution.Radio, the finest of free speech networks. It is listener-supported, so go to Revolution.Radio and find out how you can help keep this free speech outlet on the air. We're living in a world of ever-increasing censorship. It just keeps getting worse and worse, getting crazier and crazier. It seems that the corrupt elite... That is, the oligarchy that rules the West has completely given up on all these Western ideals, so-called, of freedom and uh, free thought and, and even you know, academic freedom. It's not just the media that's censored these days, but the academy is suffering even worse than it did back in 2006 when I was basically chased out for saying unkind things about the perpetrators of 9-11. So anyway, I guess that we're in a whole new world here, and... We have to talk to the folks who are willing to call it the way they see it um, and suffer all of the consequences. And one of them is my on and off again False Flag Weekly News co-host, Helen Bynisky, a.k.a. Helen of Destroy. And that's the name for Substack, which is highly recommended. She has an article up on McCarthy's wet dream about blacklisting censorship and uh, other mind control tactics of the consent manufacturing industry. And I think she has a brand new version or uh, part two up or will very soon. So let's talk about that. Hey, welcome, Helen. How's it going? It's good. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So, yeah, you uh, you talked about some academic freedom or academic unfreedom cases that I wasn't really all that familiar with in in this article. And it's it's pretty horrifying now how easy it is for them to railroad people out of the academy. I mean, back in 2006, there was still a sort of a belief in academic freedom. And so the University of Wisconsin provost at the time stood up for me to the extent of you know, refusing to fire me, even though half of the state legislature said I should be fired for the 9-11 work I was doing outside of the classroom. But the university itself and the bureaucracy said, well, wait a minute, I mean, this guy isn't really doing anything wrong, and yeah, okay, we agree, we don't like what he's saying about 9-11 either, really, but but hey, what can we do? He's doing his job, and there's this thing called academic freedom. And so that was, you know, they, they didn't rehire me then, the next semester, but they could pretend that they weren't actually censoring me, so they were all sort of, you know, bowing and kowtowing to the whole notion of academic freedom. And, you know, there was a certain reality to it still. Now, today, it looks like, there's less and less. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and about some of these bizarre cases of uh, academicians being just blatantly, brutally censored without any recourse, without any real idea of academic freedom to sustain them. Yeah, well, I think that uh, back when, when you had your situation, it was very unusual for a, a professor, especially a senior professor, a tenured professor, or or even just a graduate student to be railroaded out just because of something that they said, if they hadn't broken any laws, if they hadn't violated any disciplinary strictures or whatever. Uh, it was still very di- different, and uh, administrators might actually take some notice of it and get involved in the case itself and weigh it on the merits. And, you know, the things you're supposed to do when you have, like, one of these situations at your school. 
but um unfortunately it's become so commonplace now and these these it's because there's like a routine almost that they go through that's paint by number and so these administrators have so many of these cases that they just they don't even bother lifting a finger to to actually look at what the thing is about i mean the the, the i don't know if you're looking at the at the McCarthy's Westing article or the one before that oh that, that was probably the earlier one actually that, yeah, that, yeah that, that was that was the, uh, open with that and, and then move on yeah yeah, yeah. I wrote about uh, Tim Coles, who's a graduate. Uh, well, he's he's a doctoral uh, candidate. He he completed his doctorate, and then uh, because of an article that he wrote in a Australian uh, magazine that had nothing to do with his doctoral work, that had nothing to do with anything he did at the university, um, or he thinks it was because of a series of articles, but it it, it had something to do with his writing, which was. Like, again, completely unrelated to his work at the school. Uh, they just decided that one day they just he wasn't able to get into his email and he had no idea what was going on. And the administrators gave him the runaround and the people in his program. They didn't want to take credit for having done this act of like unpersoning. I mean, it wasn't even censorship. It was literally unpersoning. He, he used that email account for years and suddenly to be unable to access your email account in, in this day and age when uh, we do most of our stuff online. Um, it's got to be a very disturbing feeling. I mean, the, the word that I kept using and like feeling repetitive for using was Kafkaesque, but that's what it is. I mean, it's like you are you're in a, a situation where you don't know what you've done wrong. You can't plead your case because you don't know what the law you may or may not have broken is. You don't even know who you're supposed to go plead your case to because you don't know what the law you've broken is. You don't know who's on what side. It's it's a nightmare. It's a complete nightmare. And um, the fact that this is going on so often, I mean, he's he still hasn't had a, a resolution to that case. He tried to bring it up to there's there's like a a body in the UK that uh, has some sort of jurisdiction over these things, and um, it, that it was not successful. And I, so I don't I don't know like what. Uh, what they, what, what we're supposed to, 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 to take as a cue of this, like they, they want, they want people to, to go to, to go to university and to uh, study hard and get, get degrees and stuff. But uh, if by merely stepping out of line in your extracurricular activities, not even in what you do at school, you can be the perfect uh, university citizen, and just you, you might happen to write about something that is considered wrong think that week because of course it changes from week to week. One must always keep you on your toes, but um, it's. There are so many of these cases that it just boggles the mind. It's it's disgusting, and um, it's really it really makes one want to have a second thought about pursuing a career in academia. Well, that's for sure. Yeah, it really is a change in the culture from when I entered the university. Universities were seen as and saw themselves as hotbeds of dissent, and there was a lot of you know difference of opinion, uh, and. A lot of it was, you know, with some of these positions that people held were were not all that radical, maybe in retrospect. But you know, I remember when I showed up as a 17-year-old at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and quickly discovered there was this kind of weird rock star uh, Jewish professor who was basically, you know, stalking around the stage and ranting this kind of extreme sort of communist perspective. Uh, Harvey Goldberg, I think was the guy's name. And, and it was really fun. And then there was this, you know, hardcore pro-McCarthyite right-wing rag that was one of the two campus newspapers. The other was sort of a more sort of left liberal paper. And there were all these different opinions that Trotskyites were causing all sorts of trouble. You know, most people kind of acknowledged there was a problem with the JFK assassination. And, uh, and, you know, Vietnam had been a very hot issue. And, you know, bomb, a bomb had gone off on the campus killing somebody. There was a lot of, 
you know, a lot of dissent. And the one thing that everybody, with a very few exceptions, agreed on was that that's what universities were for, was was for the most, you know, cha- the biggest challenges to any form of orthodoxy should be, that's what that's the whole point of having a university. And so the only question was, well, who's going to challenge the, the establishment more interestingly or better? And so there was a competition really to sort of challenge the establishment. And the, the small number of pro-establishment people really were pretty beleaguered and they just kind of kept their mouths shut and did their jobs and, and so on. But it was, it was a really different atmosphere today. It really seems like it's the opposite that you step out of line just a little bit. You challenge the powers that be just a little bit or the prevailing opinions. And rather than being celebrated for it, you are going to be run out of town on a rail. It's really bizarre. The whole culture is going, it's not just the universities. Your new article, this McCarthy's Wet Dream article, is uh, about how we've got a de facto social credit system. So the academician who says the wrong thing on social media is, you know, they have the equivalent of getting a bad social credit score that can actually get them pushed out of their job for no ostensible reason with no due process. It's really strange. Uh, talk a little bit about some of that. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's not not only just that that they get a bad social credit score, but the the fact that these that they're reported by other people who then benefit from their social credit scores. So it's just this like lionization of the snitch as this like virtuous figure who is needed to make society run smoothly. Yeah, it's it's very uh, disappointing to see universities turn into this like hive of competitive rule obeyers, where everyone like strives to be the the best uh, rule obeyer and and fulfill these box checking exercises and this and that and it's like like cre- creativity has become a, a liability almost because it's difficult to process according to a like a gridded spreadsheet or whatever and um, it's like. I don't know. I mean, it's university is definitely not. It's not a place for minds to grow. It's a place for minds to shrink. You think synapse connections being pruned? But um, yeah. As far as um, I'm so sorry. What was what was the course? Oh yeah, about about the social credit score. Yeah, it's um. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, you, you mentioned the Trump supporters apparently have sort of been intimidated. Uh, because oh, yeah, the, black, yeah, the, 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 the January 6th blacklist. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm spacing a bit. I, I had another show earlier today, and I'm, my, my brain is a little spent. But, yeah, the January 6th protesters, the, the fact that this exists and the fact that nobody is talking about this, except uh, Brandon Straka, who was one of the victims of this situation, was on the Tucker Carlson show. Of course, Tucker Carlson is no longer with us. But um, it's literally it's right up there on the – Google, it's, it's like the first search result for everybody's name, and just like Wikipedia, except this is for like non-public figures, so it's it, normally a Wikipedia entry for a non-public figure that puts something false in it, and it would be uh, prosecutable for libel, but this is the U.S. government, Justice Department, so uh, they can say whatever they like, and there's charges that are no longer even being pressed against people. So if you got a lot of what they did to these January 6th protesters was to charge them with something big and scary sounding and try to get them to make cut a deal so they could, like, put another scalp on their wall. And, like, this is really – these people are not getting bank loans. They're not getting apartments. They're not getting – presumably they're losing, like, dates and whatever because people Google their name and they see, oh, this guy is – he turned a gun on a Capitol Police officer. It's like, well, actually, no, it wasn't a gun. It was a banana, and it wasn't a Capitol Police officer. It was uh, some, like – it was Ray Epps. Well, wait a minute. Was there really a protester who – 
turned a banana no, on a police no, I'm officer? Just, I'm just, I'm just. Okay, you just made that part up. <laughs> I mean, it, there may, there may have been though, because like the, 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 some of these charges were really ridiculously trumped up, and like I said, it, it's just because the charge was made it, and then it was dropped later, and it's still on, it's still on the uh, on the blacklist. So, like, and everybody who is charged is on there. There's something like a thousand. Um, I think there's over a thousand names that have been charged so far. And it's, if you look at, the, I mean, other people have done analysis of this. I haven't personally looked at every single one, but it would seem that like people were charged more based on uh, their social media content after the protest than they were based on what they did at the protest. So like if, if you uh, bragged about it, or if you mentioned something about the large presence of federal agents there or whatever, then uh, they felt the need to silence you a lot more than they did if you either didn't say anything or you thought, oh, this is so terrible, or you, I don't know, you, you did something more in line with like the rule obeyer type. So, I mean, it, the, the, the whole situation with that is criminal. The fact that that's still, still going on, that there are still people being ch charged with these ridiculously overblown uh, crimes, quote unquote, the fact that there are still FBI agents encouraging people's children to snitch on them. I mean, the situation with Guy Reffitt that I wrote about in that article is really, yeah, really that's, that's scary. like a horror story out of the Stalinist era. Really scary because, yeah, not, not only did that FBI agent go after him and succeed in turning him against his father, but he tried to go after the guy's daughter, too. And only at the last minute did they not put her on the stand because they figured, oh, oh she might she might actually uh, testify on his behalf instead. And it's like the fact that they even had to that that, that was even a question that, that she apparently felt like she had no choice. I would love to interview this family and I thought I was going to get a chance to talk to the mother, but I didn't. Uh, unfortunately, she was not available to speak but it's really like the the fact that they think that they have the right to just go into your family and just lay waste to the whole thing just so they can get another another notch on their belt or whatever that's really disgusting this is not a it's not a democracy and they say oh yes those people were doing an attack on democracy well somebody was doing an attack on democracy but it wasn't the protesters and to what extent do you think that the recent firing of tucker carlson might be partly related to his exposure of the video footage showing that a lot of these people, probably the vast majority, just sort of walked into the Capitol, uh, escorted by police officers. And the Q shaman, for example, was given a tour, basically, uh, by the Capitol Police. It was not, These were really among the, the least sort of rowdy, uh, destructive, rioting protesters that anybody's ever seen. And so do you think Tucker maybe got axed in part because of that? Or what, what do you think were the leading issues that were his, uh, created his situation? I do think that that was one of the, one of the major issues, because um, if you look back, Eric Swalwell, the uh, Massachusetts uh, congressman, was uh, being interviewed when when Tucker first uh, broadcast some of that footage that completely turned the whole armed insurrection narrative on its head. And um, Swalwell was saying how terrible it was that there were uh, military personnel uh, halfway around the world watching their Fox News from back home and that they would see this stuff and that how this was awful and that uh, Fox News had to do something or else someone was going to investigate Fox News. So basically he was threatening them with like an FCC probe or some some uh, agency that would be agitating for some they would, I'm sure they would find some something that they were doing wrong. There's always something you're doing wrong. Whatever three three felonies a day we all commit. So they they would have found something wrong. And uh, so Fox News was basically given an ultimatum: get rid of Tucker, or we get rid of you, or at least we find you something heavy. And it's like they were already paying what 787 million for that Dominion thing. And because the the thing is that 
the Tucker wasn't pushing the Dominion uh, voting machine uh, story. It was like he 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 was he was uh, pushing some other stuff about uh, the possible election fraud, but there, there was no like he wasn't doing the voting machine stuff. So this idea that he was let go because of that is disingenuous at best, or just sloppy thinking at worst. But um, it's yeah, there, there, there's there's definitely. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's also the possibility that, that he's like being the, the the sacrificial lamb, and people are supposed to like rush to this. Like, they want to shoot the messenger, and then everybody focuses on the messenger and and, and forgets about the message, which is something that sort of happened with Julian Assange. But um, it's I, I, I'm not really sure which which one it is because it it really remains to be seen what Tucker is going to do after all of this. He hasn't really made any grand statements except for that little video, so. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like he didn't get a whole lot of advance notice about this. Yeah. And, and you know, it's sort of ironic that they're saying what this is really all about is the assault on democracy, that there's been an attempt to overthrow democracy. Well, what is that attempt to overthrow democracy that they're talking about? Well, the, you boil it down, and what it really was was way too many people voting for a candidate that the oligarchy doesn't approve of. So... That's an assault on democracy. I thought that was democracy, but what do I know? Well, that's, well, that's that's what they're saying in Brazil now. There's this uh, Supreme Court judge in Brazil who's like totally on a rampage. This uh, Alexander Moraes, I think is how you pronounce his name. But um, the 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 way that Washington Post tries to like describe it because they're they're suppressing like right wing media that there because right wing media is very popular. Bolsonaro was very popular. And uh, this this new guy is not uh, well. He's not really new. Lula is he, he was the, the president, and then he was in jail, and now he's the president again. But um, he's not not a big fan of this right wing media stuff. So he they're they're trying to suppress it, and they're, and they're they're saying, oh, it's fake news, so we have to get rid of it. Everybody likes it, and this is really terrible because it's against democracy. Okay, so everybody likes it, and it's against democracy. But because it's really really popular, it's against democracy. But but I thought democracy was about the majority. Is it? It's like they 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 hope you don't notice these things, and it's. I mean, I have I have no love loss for Bolsonaro. I think he's kind of an idiot. But um, it's he he definitely served a purpose in terms of like demonizing the the uh, opposition to COVID and opposition to various other things. <sighs> right. Well, maybe some of the anti-Bolsonaro stuff will temper down now that Lula is way too friendly to Russia uh, from the standpoint of the Western oligarchy. But, you know, getting back to Tucker Carlson, we're told that the Western system is based on free speech and then a free competition of ideas as well as economic competition. And so Tucker Carlson had the most watched show on television, the biggest, highest ratings, most viewers, which theoretically should bring in the most advertising dollars. And according to the theoretical sort of free market of ideas model that underlies Western free speech and economics, theoretically, Tucker Carlson and everybody else should be allowed to say whatever they want to say. If they depart from protected speech, then they are, of course, going to be held accountable legally. But normally, you would think that somebody like Tucker Carlson, who develops the biggest audience on television, would be rewarded economically and would be kind of respected as having gotten that big audience, there would not be any particular thought of needing or wanting to silence him. Rather, his opponents would try to come up with ideas that would you know, beat his ideas and then frame them in an entertaining way to attract an audience and so on and so forth. 
but they seem to now be totally focused on shutting down the messenger and attacking the messenger with ad hominems rather than engaging in debate about the ideas being presented. And that shift, you know, that radical shift, you know, it's, I mean, there's always been an element of ad hominem attack and there's always been an element of respecting free speech in you know, the breach more than the observance. But it's really out of control now when this can happen to the most popular talk show host. And it's, uh, it, it, I think that's a sign that the Western elite's supposed worldview has been just totally hollowed out. I mean, they obviously no longer believe it. So the, the ideological foundations of the West are are dead they're gone they've you know withered and, and blown away and so what do we have now we just have this brutal orwellian oligarchy you know it's like frank zappa said that at some point when they realize that it's too expensive to keep up the illusion of freedom and they'll just tear down all of the the, the set the stage set and you'll see the brick wall at the back of the theater and that seems to be what we're seeing now yeah, certainly the period right before that happens. I mean, but what we have now is just the, the range of ideas that is considered socially acceptable or acceptable to express in the media has been so narrowed that there's really they can barely fill a 24 hour news cycle with this stuff because it's just you can't even deviate even slightly because then it contradicts what you said last week. And they can't run the memory hole fast enough to chop up all of the things that contradicted what you said the week before. And it's at this point that they're relying on our three second goldfish memories, but even those are not quite enough to cover up for their complete ineptitude. And it, it's like the, the, way, the way that I've described it is that the, these the narrative managers who are working now, they know that the, the, this this process, this grand process of news making and narrative management was set in motion by their ancestors several generations ago. And they just assumed it was always going to work. And now that it's starting to break down, they realize they have no idea what uh, these these their ancestors did to make it go. They just knew that it would go and uh, that they, the rituals that they do are now no longer working to keep it going. And they don't know the meaning of those rituals or what to do to troubleshoot them. And so what we're seeing is just a complete collapse and like total chaos. But um, as far as like T Tucker Carlson bringing in um, advertising dollars, I was under the impression that like this uh, group Color of Change, which is one of these, it's basically uh, the, the, race, the racial cutout for the ADL. Uh, this guy, Rashad Robinson, who is a complete, like, he's a disturbed individual. I saw him on the Aspen Institute panel. I wrote about it in my article that's going to be coming out soon. So you can all share my disturbance. But um, he's his whole thing is to uh, go after, quote-unquote, controversial um, individuals on the media and get their advertisers to deplatform them. So he goes after the pocketbook and doesn't even bother to engage with the ideas, which is, unfortunately, this is the way that it's done again and again and again because these people don't have ideas to compete with. The ideas are so, like, just... Basically, you, 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 hear, you hear them come out of their mouths and, and you just, like, instinctively know that there is nothing backing them up. The lights are on, but nobody's home. Yeah, yeah, that, that's how it was when the ADL came after Substack and me. I was listed as like the fourth on their list of the evil Substackers who really should be shut down. And it, it's pretty laughable what they had to say about me. I mean, you can't imagine any of these people actually coming on the show, for example, and trying to have a rational conversation about our areas of disagreement. They'll never do that. Um, oh, you should hear you should hear the uh, the lawsuit that they filed against uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, this woman. 
Abby, um, blanking on, oh, Grossberg, Abby Grossberg. Uh, she was a talent booker for Tucker Carlson, and she sued him uh, for supposedly because he was a sexist and anti-Semite. You know the anti-Semitic thing that his people did? His producer, during the Christmas season, uh, there was a Christmas tree near her cubicle, and the guy hung a sign on it that said Hanukkah Bush. This was the anti-Semitic thing that, that, that he did, and it was so terrible, and it uh, caused her psychological pain and suffering, and she uh, she wants his head on a plate. And it's, I mean, this, the lawsuit is just unbelievable. You read this thing and you wonder, how does a person like this ever get hired for a real job? Like, this person is not fit to, like, cut out construction paper with kindergartners. Like, she, she this is a very disturbed person. <laughs> and, and a lawyer is reading, uh, like, I, I don't know if he's reading from a sheet of paper or if, or if he's just reciting from memory, but he's talking about the, the uh, Hanukkah bush, and he's saying it with a complete straight face and, like, very solemn, like, oh, this is so terrible. Did anybody want to see this, this horrible anti-Semitic thing about the Hanukkah bush? So it's like these, these people make jokes of themselves, and they, and they expect us to take them seriously. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that that lawsuit. I didn't read the actual lawsuit, but just reading the mainstream media reports on it, it's kind of a head scratcher. You know, it turns out that she never even met Tucker Carlson, so she's suing this guy for like sexual harassment and you know anti-Semitism, and you know you you'd assume that the guy you know he must Tucker must have thrown himself on her and tried to force himself on her, and you know and it just reacted like Harvey Weinstein would have really crass and so on and so forth. But as it turns out, she never even met him. <laughs> So it's all Tucker's fault. I'm hoping you overlook that part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, wow. If if you can get, you know, sued for sexual harassment by people that you never even met, I don't know. I mean, who's, who's safe these days? You know, when you step back and think about this in historical context, you know, so there's this, this arc of history and it's, it's descending to a new low. It seems pretty much every day, but how did we get here? What's, what are the underlying forces driving all of this? And it occurs to me, that the work of people like Walter Ong and Marshall McLuhan and that whole school that worked on orality and literacy, and of course Neil Postman is a famous writer who's worked on these issues as well. I think that we, you know, we had a different culture back when the First Amendment was really sort of honored and was sort of the, you know, the ideal, if not always put into practice properly. But there was actually pretty good First Amendment jurisprudence for much of the history of the United States. And that was because it was a literate culture. In the 19th century, even, you know, the people in the little cabins in the hinterlands were learning to read and write. They were reading the King James Bible, which is a pretty thick, poetic document that, you know, you have to be literate to to actually read that. And if you read the stuff that was in the papers and the magazines in the 19th century, it's quite highly literate. It's way beyond a lot of what's being published now. And so... I think what may have happened is that people fell into audiovisual land in the 20th century and that affected their brains. You know, we know that literacy pumps up the left hemisphere and encourages a lot of rational, you know, that left hemisphere style thought and that non-literate people are better at certain kinds of things, but they have also, you know, certain shall we say, susceptibilities to being led by uh, emotions and emotionally galvanizing images and uh, and sounds and, and speech patterns and things like that. And so today, an awful lot of people are not reading books anymore. You know, they're reading stuff off the Internet with a very short attention span, you know, Twitter being the extreme example of a website that's based on that. 
And then they're watching a lot of video and getting this emotionally intense kind of audiovisual discourse with lots of images, lots of emotionally evocative video. Mm-hmm. So they're just not literate anymore, and that has changed the thinking. And so there's just a basic lack of critical thinking based on the way that people have trained their brains throughout their education. And I wonder if if that's part of the issue here, that all of this sound and fury that we're hearing from all these people trying to silence the people saying things they don't like because of these emotional things about whether, you know, hostile workplace Hanukkah Bush and anti-Semitism here and, you know, white nationalists, J6ers, all this kind of stuff that's bothering people and, and emotionally messing with them so that they try to silence the speech that they don't like. If this is a symptom of a society that's no longer basically literate. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has something to do with that, but it's also that they, that they, they were deliberately, like, in, in school, children are deliberately trained to not be critical thinkers. I mean, it's it's not even a question of they just don't pick up critical thinking because they're not reading. It's a question of that they're to- taught to just obey. And if you're just taught to obey, then you you see monkey, you see monkey do, and this the you can't just like process this this information on a higher level that you would if you're a, a reading thinking human who is capable of not necessarily imbibing every single idea that's put in front of them. And that's one of the reasons why they have to do this like such strict online censorship is because if you have this population of like I refer to them as like sheep grazing in a field, and the wolf comes in and. He's just a, maybe it's just a little tiny little wolf who's just like a, not even full grown. But these sheep have never seen a wolf and they just think the wolf is so cute and cuddly and they just want to come over and be his friend because they've never seen a wolf before so they just don't know. I mean, the, 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 there's also a metaphor with the vaccine thing, but I don't even want to go there because I'm, it's the, the, the idea that, that like the, 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 they have never been exposed to the virus, the virus being this dissenting idea. And so they, they don't know what to do with the dissenting idea. And they just uh, they're defenseless against it. It's like the, the aliens in that science fiction movie who are done in by the common cold as they invade Earth and everyone's terrified. And then somebody coughs on them and they'll die. So it's like that's basically what we're dealing with with information in terms of like these these uh, populations that are just helpless because they can't do, think critically. If they encounter an unfamiliar idea, they don't really know that you have to sometimes you know interrogate this idea. Does this fit with reality as experienced by me? Does this fit with the reality that I read about? Uh, who is this coming from? Uh, what is the who benefits from this? Um, there are all, all kinds of questions you have to ask yourself if you are. are with a with a an earth shattering unfamiliar idea, not just a oh so and so celebrity wore blue shoes today. You don't need to interrogate that one. But uh, if you say oh well the U.S. government and uh, some its friends in the Middle East uh, who were responsible for the collapse of three skyscrapers on 9/11, um, that's definitely an idea that you need to interrogate. But uh, it's I mean it, it just just the fact that people are not equipped with the basic like mechanics to do this stuff is um it, i don't know how you go about like repairing that on a societal scale because you can't just do it all at once and obviously you would want to institute in like schools so reinstitute the process of like literacy and critical thinking and all of that but it's a little late for the people who are all grown up now so i don't know what what is the solution there um i mean otherwise they just end up all following the nearest uh, guy off a cliff but I yeah. guess we're already in the midway through that process right now. Maybe we need adult education, night classes in critical thinking and media literacy, but the real thing, not the uh, 
you know, the fact checker, like basically anytime you see anything that sounds a little bit uh, conspiratorial, be sure and, and check with a, the fact checker. I mean, that's pretty oh, much yeah, what they have, The latest thing is that conspiracy theories are killing people. So if you share a, a meme with a conspiracy theory in it, you're responsible for somebody who dies. Yeah, real world harm. You know, we can't yeah. allow free speech because there could be real world harm from the free speech. Wow, the, the founders of the first, the framers of the First Amendment would not particularly agree with that, I'm afraid. So, uh, I, I, I was, I was going to talk uh, about the. Uh, oh boy, where, where, where was I going with this? I was, I was, oh yeah, I was thinking about the way that with both 9/11 and COVID, there's it seems like a kind of a a middle, you know, socio-economic, intellectual, educational sort of middle ground of people who are the most susceptible to the propaganda, and the some of the least educated people. And the most educated people are less susceptible to the propaganda. And with COVID, we know that the vaccination rates are the lowest with the least educated people and the most educated people. So the people with PhDs got the fewest vaccines and and the people with no high school diploma got pretty much equally few. And when you get into, so who got the most vaccines? Well, the uh, people with bachelor's degrees got a lot of vaccines, but the people who got the most vaccines and hardly ever dissented were the people who only have master's degrees but not PhDs. So what's what's up with that? You know, I saw the same thing with 9-11. My Howard uh, mechanic friend, who's he was a really smart guy. He passed away, unfortunately. He figured, yeah, he took one look at the towers coming down when it happened, and he immediately knew that that just was not physically possible to for that to be from jet fuel. And it took me a couple of years because, you know, I'm educated. <laughs> uh, so that dynamic is, is kind of interesting. And it seems to me that maybe at the very, very high end, sort of intellectually and educationally, you have people who kind of understand what's going on. In some cases, like with the neocons, the neocons are fully conscious and aware of all of this. And their whole philosophy is that, you know, you can't tell the truth in public. You never should be allowed to. Strauss had that idea of secret writing where the top intellectuals have always basically concealed the truth because it's too dangerous. It'll destroy the society that they're in. So they just take it for granted. So they decided to destroy the society instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, as it turns out, they're destroying the society by virtue of their insane philosophy. But according to their, their insane philosophy, the truth would destroy the society. So they have to create a self-styled elite that is dedicated to systematically lying and misleading and propagandizing the masses. And so they know full well about 9-11. They know full well about COVID. They know all this stuff. And they'll never say it in public because, you know, that that's their philosophy is is to systematically lie and conceal. Uh, well, the thing is that the, uh, the, the lesser, like the, the master's degree people, those are the ones who have been, they, 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 they have this more of a drive towards conformity, I think, and that they, they've been taught to question their own uh, in- instincts. So, like, I mean, when I first saw the, the, uh, the planes flying into the buildings, my, my, re- my reactions were very different from the ones that uh, people publicly had on television and stuff. And I kept them to myself because I thought, hmm, I don't know if this is really something that I'm supposed to say out loud. But it's like the, the people who, who did say it out loud it was was all like, oh, yeah, we need to go get those people and go get those. And I think I've told you this before, but the next day, the next morning, there was a bumper sticker on the car in front of mine dropping me off at school with Mickey Mouse and American flag underpants with his middle finger in the air saying, Osama can kiss my ass the next day. So that's a pretty fast. Well, that, that'll, that'll sure teach Osama. <laughs> 
The speed at which that sticker somehow made it to market, it doesn't, it doesn't even remotely compute. But, yeah, um, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, so, somebody saw an opportunity uh, well in advance, apparently. Yeah, and, and, and then it, I, I also experienced the same thing with, uh, like, I used to do deliveries. Uh, I was a courier, and uh, so I would hear, like, just like, doormen or delivery people talking just nonchalantly about, like, 9-11, about stuff that you would not expect people, to, like, blue-collar type people to maybe be talking about if you're more not used to moving in those circles. And you, if you if I, if I was in the the other elevators in that same building, the ones with, that had the white-collar workers and the, the people who work at the advertising agency and everything, these were not people who would be talking about 9-11. These were people who were very, very much prioritized conformity, very much prioritized keeping up appearances, prioritized doing what you're supposed to do. And what you're supposed to do, obviously, is maintain the narrative, the narrative managers, and that's what these people were. And that's, in, in, in a lot of cases, like the people who are like the the – the not quite the highest educated, but like the master's degree people, these are the people who feel it's like their duty to conserve the narrative. And so they don't necessarily want to venture too far outside because it's, this is, they've paid their whole lives into the system. They've worked very hard to get where they are and they don't even want to allow the possibility of the, uh, that, that this might not be what they think it is. So do they teach people in journalism school these days that your job is to maintain the narrative? When I was in journalism school, it, was the time of Watergate and everybody believed in this myth that Woodward and Bernstein had brought down the Nixon presidency and that was wonderful and it showed what a wonderful, vibrant, free press we have. At that time, we didn't know that Bob Woodward was ONI, Naval Intelligence, and that he worked with some of the biggest oligarchs in the country, including the Bush family, to overthrow Nixon in what amounted to a coup d'etat. So, but, but, you know, we still believe that the press, the free press, was you know, that was where it was at. We want, you know, the press was supposed to go out and, and, you know, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted and, uh, spill the beans on, you know, all, all of the bad things that the elite was doing. I mean, we, there was really a, a kind of a basic just assumption that the media was going to be honest and doing the job it's supposed to do. That's, that was the atmosphere in journalism school then. And I wonder if it still is uh, or how, how have they managed to convince these journalists to, just be uncritical narrative managers. Well, they've, they've inserted this whole like fact-checking industrial complex, like right smack in the middle of journalism. That, that wasn't a thing when, I mean, I took uh, one semester of journalism school and uh, that wasn't a thing. Like, I mean, we did our own fact-checking. It wasn't like this whole like uh, separate profession that gets all this glory and, oh, the fact-checkers are the high priestesses of information and we must all defer to them because they know what truth is and what is not. That was not a thing. The International Fact-Checking Network that's sponsored by like Pierre Omidyar and George Soros and Bill Gates and all these other oligarchs, uh, that wasn't even around until 2015. So this idea that this is this like historic profession that has been the central to journalism for since time immemorial is completely BS. And uh, that I think that has a lot to do with like how the journalism has shifted in terms of its focus. Like the just the Claire Wardle from First Draft, the one who came up with the fake news, who she she revived the concept of fake news. Obviously, fake news already existed, but like she's been a dead central in all this Aspen Institute stuff, all this information disorder, which is. I mean, I guess I I should have published this article before I came on this show, but I wasn't done with it yet. But information disorder is basically that they, they, they pin on you the fact that you don't trust their institutions, and they say that that is your problem, and it's something diagnosable, and you need to get help. So, uh, yeah, this this uh, Claire Wardle and her um, this yeah, information disorder, but... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going around. Yeah, I'm sorry. What's, the name? What's the name of the disorder again? 
Oh, information disorder. They're calling it information, information disorder. Basically, disorder. not not trusting the, the society's institutions because uh, and they, they admit that it's not uh, the, the individual's fault, but then they quickly gloss over that and get to, well, how do we reduce demand for all of this disinformation, all of this dissent, which is obviously code. And uh, the, the, so the, the idea is, OK, so how do we lobotomize these people to make it so they don't want truth anymore? And that's what media literacy is about. So you, when you've got somebody like Brandy Zadrozny, I think is her name, the one uh, who works for NBC. She was like one of Pointer Institutes, uh, which is Amadiar's uh, IFC and International Fact-Checking Institute, uh, one of these fact-checking monsters, uh, one of the big stars in the beginning. And now she's writing journalism textbooks for, uh, I guess, like Pointer's journalists, which I guess, I don't know if it's training these people online or what, but um, it's like these pointer fellowships, and, and she's got this textbook that she wrote, supposedly. I mean, I'm assuming somebody else wrote it. I, I, I have a very difficult time imagining this woman writing a textbook, but um, it's all about how to dox people and how to um, pry into their lives and pry into the lives of private citizens, too. It's not, not like you're doxing celebrities or doxing uh, corporate executives who are polluting the rivers or whatever you like the muckraking journalism of times past where you would actually want to, you know, dox the, the guy who dumped the dioxins in the river and get back at him for avenge the deaths of all the neighborhood children or whatever. Uh, that's that's not what's going on here. This is like uh, Brandy Sidrosny going after the mother of autistic children because she doesn't like how they choose to treat their child's uh, disorder and uh, making their life living hell. So it's like the, the fact that this person is not only um, celebrated but gets to train the next generation of journalists, I mean, that's pretty scary. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why uh, the media is headed into the toilet so quickly. Maybe somebody should use her own textbook to dox her. But um, in I'm any sure case, be by now. <laughs> <laughs> this whole idea of disinformation, malinformation, misinformation, all that stuff, is so bizarre that it's taken this Orwellian turn because, again, back when I was in journalism school from 1976 through 1981, it was just taken for granted that the term disinformation referred to what governments do. And it was applied to everything from the obvious government lies about the Vietnam War that had been fully exposed. And, you know, it was applied also, of course, to other countries. It was taken for granted that the USSR used disinformation. These government propaganda, and to some extent corporate propaganda mixed with government propaganda, That's those are the people that would use disinformation. That is deliberately deceiving the public. And indeed, I think disinformation originally may have come from the, the term came from the CIA, but it, it was always used to refer to that sort of thing. And now it's been turned completely around and they've got the misinformation, the malinformation, this, all, all of this is being applied to critics of government and critics of the corporate regime that owns the government. So the oligarchy is now weaponizing this term against the, the powerless people who are criticizing power when back in the day it used to be the opposite. Yeah, this um, this researcher at University of Washington, Kate Starbird, uh, she she a few years ago she had to have disinformation the the definition of the word expanded to include like truths arranged to serve a purpose or something to do with like factual information that was like arranged to accomplish something. Which back in the day, I mean, that was journalism, but. Um, it's so that 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 she didn't quite succeed in that, and now it's that that's malinformation. Now malinformation is truth, but like 
used nefariously, of course, nefariously being completely in the eye of the beholder, and, and anything that's used against the U.S. government is malinformation. Right, used by somebody who, has so... a, who believes different things about the context, somebody who presents the facts, yeah. but their context is different from mine. Well, that's uh, that's malinformation. Or just that, that, that you order the facts in such a way that it that it reveals a certain thing about the person that the facts are about. I mean, like... If you say, I mean, you, let's say you reveal the hypocrisy of a famous person by by saying, well, they did this, and then they talked about this, and then they did this again. And uh, I mean, I, can't, I don't have any examples at the top of my head. My brain's a little fried aside, but uh, it, it's just it's like really obvious. And the fact that they still are calling this stuff disinformation and they're deplatforming people for it, it it's well, like, well, a good example of that, Helen, would, would be RFK Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. You know, that went through rigorous fact checking, and it's almost all true. Maybe a few things are under dispute, but basically. The factual elements of that book are not really disputed, and yet, uh, of course, we're supposed to believe that the book is terrible and it's malinformation. Yada yada. Yad. Why is that? Well, just because the facts are being presented in such a way as to lead us away from the mainstream narrative. Yeah, they they have to uh, they have to make sure that people don't actually pick the thing up and read it themselves because then they will be convinced because as I said before they don't know how to deal with like dissenting information especially because information I mean that that book is so meticulously researched and so well documented and so damning basically to to, to the people who are described within it I mean you can't re- come away from that and think well you know Fauci actually that he's an okay guy. No, you don't. You don't think that, and it's just that that uh, so they 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 talk this stuff up as if it's the most evil, like racist Russian propaganda, like all these terrible things that you don't want anything to be, and so that people will be uh, disinclined to actually go and pick it up. Of course, forbidden fruit always, and the Streisand effect, and all these other ways of describing the same thing, which is basically if you have the authorities screaming at the top of their lungs, "Don't look over there! Everybody's going to look over there." And so they have to actually put a physical block there, which is why groups like the ADL are talking openly about how they uh, think that it's a great idea to, like, just remove websites, like, uh, actually go in at the DNS point or go in and and strip the uh, domain name from these websites that, that they don't like. And uh, then nobody can go and look at them. And then, well, that that, that happened to Tony Hall. Hate mongers. Yeah, yeah, Tony Hall, who was, who's also been on False Flag Weekly News a fair bit, had, had that American Herald Tribune website. Oh, uh, he has lost his website? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, shutting down websites. And, and then there's, of course, the financial war on the uh, truth tellers, the, uh, the lawsuits. You mentioned the Alex Jones Sandy Hook judgment. Uh, oh, yeah. Kind of bizarre the amount of money they seem to think Alex well, Jones has. Well, the fact that he completely threw that lawsuit too—that his his lawyer like sent all of his own texts to the to the opposition—and like, um, dude, you, you, that's that, that's not a screw up that you just accidentally make. That's like you are deliberately throwing the case. So I don't know what exactly arrangement he had that with there with those people, but uh, that case did not go along the way that a normal lawsuit would of that, especially of that size. I mean, they, they just. They piled on as much as they possibly could to make sure that nobody else ever goes and investigates anything that remotely looks like a mass casualty event because, well, look what happened to Alex Jones. You wouldn't want that to happen to you now, would you? And it's like they, they, all these people are held up as cautionary tales, and that's why they – Guy Reffitt, the guy whose son was persuaded to snitch on him by the FBI agent, the, he was the first of the January 6th defendants to be convicted, and uh, he went to trial because he said he was innocent. 
And so, of course, they had to punish him for that, and he gets seven years in jail for not even setting foot on the Capitol. So, again and again, they they want to make very sure that nobody even, like, lifts a finger in resistance. And worse yet, nobody even goes to the aid of somebody who is lifting a finger in resistance, because then you, too, will get punished. And that's they're, they're steadily trying to isolate people who are... Just, you know, trying to fight back against these parasites. And, um, it's, it's getting to the point where, like, you were talking about with the academic situation earlier, like, people are not going to come to the aid of, like, a, a, a maverick professor or a graduate student who's doing interesting work or whatever because they just, they don't want to stick their neck out anymore. And it's, it's almost become a point. Well, I guess in some cases it is a point. Certainly with Alex Jones, it is at a point. Where people rejoice to see the person, the uh, the targeted person, uh, fall, and they just they really take great joy in watching them, like fine for millions of dollars or lose their uh, business or lose their platform or whatever, and it's like what what has to go wrong in a person's mind that they can just like go from being a, a normal, open, curious human being to just relishing in the the, 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 the the relishing in seeing their government take down just an ordinary citizen for saying the wrong things. Well, it's interesting that the people that are not on board with the oligarchs narrative in the United States tend to be on the so-called <coughs> political right. And in the other countries, not so yeah. much like, like, uh, the, well, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with Morocco where I'm actually moving soon. And one of the reasons I'm moving to Morocco is that pretty much everybody there agrees with me on, you hmm. know, on stuff that is like super sensitive here. You know, I, I was shocked when I first went there because all of my, you know, these professors and Fulbright people, basically all of the Moroccans that I dealt with who were all, you know, either PhDs, on track to PhD, you know, very smart, well-educated people, they all just accepted that it was obvious that the Holocaust story was grossly exaggerated, <laughs> if not completely made up out of whole cloth. That was just, and they'd read all the books, Roger Garodi, and so they, so they all read dozens and dozens of books on this, and that was their view. And at the time, I hadn't really been exposed to that, and it struck me as, hmm, this is bizarre, but, you know, <laughs> these are smart people, I don't know. And, and, uh, likewise, you know, the poll shows 97% of Pakistanis don't accept the official version of 9-11. It's probably close to that in Morocco, I would think. Uh, and well, Pakistanis, especially because that, that hit, hit right on with the, the the invasion and everything. I mean, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and of course they they know all about you know Bin Bin Laden was right next door. Yeah, and so yeah, every, everybody who knew anything about Al Qaeda and Bin Laden from the get go, they knew that this whole story was completely absurd. And and so it's uh, it's interesting how here in the United States we have the opposition to the oligarchs narrative being on the sort of nationalistic political right for the most part. And the left has really capitulated. There's just a little sliver of... Well, it's not, it's not the real left, though. That's the thing, is that, like, after Occupy, when they said that they saw some class solidarity, and they're like, oh, crap, this is not going to end well for us. So they threw in a bunch of identity politics crap and shook it really hard and then stood back and watched the whole thing explode. But there's still... There are factions of the... of well, not factions, but the slivers of actual leftists and i mean i would consider myself to be on the political left but uh i'm certainly not not i wouldn't consider myself conservative but um there is definitely i mean unfortunately people have sort of relinquished the, that descriptor because it's just gotten so tiresome to just be like well no that's, that's not the real left and this and this but it's true it's not the real left and i mean this is like the the the, the real left does not support like 
uh, the FBI and the CIA and uh, large corporations that just happen to like print their receipts in rainbow paper for Gay Pride Month or whatever. That's not like the, that's not a left thing. That's more of a sort of cynical neoliberal thing. And I would say it's neither left nor right. It's just uh, it's just obnoxiously fascist and um, in your face and. Uh, I mean, the, the whole fascism is one of the, the definitions is the union of corporate and state power in, in the form of a police state that controls speech heavily. And uh, that's what we're dealing with. And I know that that term has become overused to describe everything that a person doesn't like, but it does kind of apply here. And I mean, a lot of people refer to it as communist, but communist is workers owning the means of production. There is no means of production in the United States. We are a parasite economy. Finance is it and then we well, I guess yeah human resources we find our ways to like milk misery out of people and somehow monetize that but that's not really anything to be proud of I don't I don't know wouldn't really want to wear that one on my sleeve but yeah well I had an interesting conversation with Alex Craner the other day in which he argued that he was freer when he lived under so-called communism in the former Yugoslavia than he is today in the West pointing out that there was an informal system of private ownership of land and businesses. It was all, I mean, it was easy to own businesses, easy to own your own land and house and so on and so forth. There were no property taxes. There was no income tax and people were pretty much left alone. So even the economic freedom was, was greater there than in the West today. Oh yeah. The economic freedom here is non-existent. I mean, you like the, 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 the things that the IRS gets away with, the fact that they don't have to show any sort of probable cause to open an investigation into you, to harass you constantly with mailings, to like claim you owe them thousands and thousands of dollars that you never have, never have even had that much money. And they just like, just lob non nonsense charges at you. And they can get away with this because of the IRS, they don't have any sort of responsibility to the truth. And yet this is like, and you know that this money is not going to like roads and bridges and stuff. People say, oh, yes, you need to pay your taxes because uh, it's going it's to going Zelensky. Infrastructure. Yeah, it's going, exactly. It's going to Zelensky's cocaine fund. And like, I mean, I just I just don't think that that's a good use of my money. Yeah. yeah well, I've never been a huge fan of where American tax money goes. It's mostly no, it's up by the military industrial complex. Israel. But uh, yeah. And and. So it's, I think that's really the problem here. I mean, what's really going on is that the Internet era has exposed people to too much true information. So in a sense, the neocons are partly right, that if you have a profoundly corrupt society, then the truth is kind of a corrosive well, yeah, to that society's much, institutions. by who's measured. Yeah. But who's measure? If 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 we had a like a functional uh, government, then it would be great to have everybody exposed to the truth because then people could vote based on like information instead of based on emotional responses and crappy advertisements. And like we would actually have the, the, the machinery of state would at least sort of function. I mean, certainly better be better than what we have now. Yeah, but of course the parasites and the parasitical oligarchs benefit from the system the way it is, and so they will make sure that change doesn't happen. Speaking of which, some folks, including myself, have at least a degree of hope that RFK Jr.'s candidacy could kind of mess with the American political system. There's even a slight chance he could win and assume office, although it's kind of hard to imagine. You think the how CIA that could is going to let him get anywhere near the White House? Yeah, well, there there is the they, but, you know, the they consists of all of these folks with their own interests and beliefs and so on. And, you know, if you get enough special ops guys who have kind of, you know, a certain group of them were to decide that they like RFK Jr. better than the opposition, 
you know, that, I mean, these are all, it's all human beings. I mean, all of these people are human beings and a lot of them are profoundly corrupt, of course, but there's always that possibility that, you know, things can play out differently. People can change their views. People can suddenly decide, you know, why, why have I been spending my life doing this? Maybe, uh, maybe I should throw in my lot with that. So it's, it's, it, I don't think it's all cut and dried, but certainly the historical, you know, the, the ball is rolling down the hill, the snowball's rolling down the hill and getting heavier and, and stopping it is less and less likely. But, uh, I, I don't think anything's impossible. I mean, the world is, is creative, chaotic, you know, God can manifest miraculous things and so we just you just never know and I, I sense a lot of potential in terms of waking people up from this candidacy right after right after covid the most important covid dissident with this fabulous mythological name running for president and he turns he's a very smart and seems well-intentioned guy i mean that's all pretty interesting yeah no i mean i, I think his his attention intentions are completely good and i mean like i've, I've met the guy and he's uh, seems very genuine to me and I just, I, I don't, I don't like the idea of like, I mean, given what happened to his father and his uncle, when they, they went for president, I, I don't want to see anything bad happen to him, let's say. Yeah, I me mean, too. He, he's, he's done so much good, like with his foundation and everything. Like, it just seems that he could do more good, like continuing to, you know, fight on behalf of uh, the world. Okay, so, so you're arguing against courting martyrdom. <laughs> <laughs> Some people used to argue with me about that, too. Well, thank you. Uh, Helen Bynisky, always good checking in with you. Keep up the great work at your Substack. And Thanks for having me on. Helenofdestroy.substack.com. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. That's Helen Bynisky. Kevin Beer at signing out.